Cool. So you're telling me that local cops are garbage and FBI knows something about what they're doing? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, I always kind of imagine that much as a lot of organizers sort of study the history of organizing and social movements so that we can learn to be better at them. Uh, I imagine there must be some division of the FBI that also studies those things so that they can be more effective at disrupting them. Because the FBI has a strategy that seems to be consistent and actually in many cases works pretty well. The local cops do not. And you'd think there'd be some communication there at the very least, but what we see on the ground is that uh, the local police forces do not really know what they're doing and don't seem to have a coherent strategy. And we can get, we can get into the details of that later. Yeah. I, so I thought that when COINTELPRO was exposed that the FBI stopped trying to fuck with political organizations. Uh, that, right. Not my understanding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, so you mean that the attempts at trying to hold the FBI accountable for their actions didn't actually have an effect? It's almost as though reform doesn't work, and we need to abolish the police. Yeah. <laughs> would say in this case that the feds much like the cops you know over time have interfaced with like social movements and have adapted their strategies and there seems to be more institutional memory for the feds than there are for like local cops and so yeah that makes sense they seem to be better at having you know an effective strategy because there's like more held knowledge there and the yeah. cops would be like you know pretty piecemeal and operating off of like kind of throw emotions rather than like yeah. understanding. Well, and I think in the FBI, you also have people who like, it's their job to do this. Right. Um, whereas you don't really quite have that with like local police departments in most places where it's just like, they're dealing with, you know, the general like everyday oppression <laughs> instead of uh, the more like big picture oppression that the FBI involves itself with. Yeah. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine that even larger cities, uh, police departments yeah. don't have anyone whose like full time job is like disrupting social movements. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the NYPD. Mm -hmm. Although, once again, their their actions on the ground do not indicate that they know how to do that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well. I think it's a I think it's a really good discussion to have because like when you're advocating for police abolition and you're trying to come up, come up with what your strategy is for that, right? You know, you have your goal, which is to get rid of the police, you know, and like replace it with something better for our society. And you got to come up with a strategy for that. A really important part of that is to like study what the police are doing because like the police are the major supporters of maintaining the police, obviously. Um <laughs> uh so I think that gets to, to kind of the topic for today. Um, so this is The Long Road, uh, and I am Sasha. 
Um, Trevor was uh, sent to re-education because of too many off-collar jokes, and he will be back uh, in an indefinite period of time. Um, on the other hand, we do have two guests here, uh, some rather experienced activists and uh, good friends of mine, uh, Alex and Jay. So uh, I I won't spend too much time like introducing y'all. Uh, I think y'all can probably do it better for yourselves. So can you uh, um, tell us a little bit about uh, you know you know who you are and and why we should trust you when you talk about stuff? <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks, Sasha. My name is Jay. Um, I'm actually not going to introduce myself in too great of detail. Uh, for various reasons, uh, which will probably become apparent over the course of this podcast, but among them, the FBI kind of has a pretty well-figured-out strategy of targeting organizers and ruining their lives. So I can offer no evidence that you should trust me at all. Uh, I'm just an organizer, and I've organized in several different realms, including environmental justice and, uh, most recently, abolishing the police and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and I'm Alex, and I tend to do direct action organizing, um, and that can be applied in a variety of spaces. Um, I have a lot more experience with the environmental justice movement, uh, but I've also worked in like social justice movements as well. And, you know, trust me as much as what I say makes sense and resonates with you. And if it doesn't, you know, not an authority, but I would love to like share my experiences and, you know, offer something to the discourse for like our future liberation together. Awesome. Yeah. So the reason I, I wanted to talk to y'all was um, we have a massive influx of people on the streets right now, uh, in, you know, in the last month um, for very good reason. Uh, and you have a lot of people who have not been involved in activist spaces and a lot of people who have um, not been to protest before, right? They haven't organized to make political change in, in, uh, at all before in their lives. And so I think, uh, you know, especially inexperienced people who are like, uh, doing this for the first time and even in, and even people who've been in it for years, but, uh, but haven't like sat down and really figured out, uh, like maybe always the best practices, uh, that I think we would benefit from learning a little bit more about how to think about our activism, how to make the political change that we want to make. And so that's why I wanted to talk to y'all because I know that you two have got, uh, you know, it's important stuff to say about uh, strategy and tactics for achieving our political goals, like, uh, you know, putting an end to the police, abolishing police, and to defend the environment against the destruction that corporations in the state are committing against it. So um, I'm going to kind of hand it over to y'all to sort of, uh, you know, walk you know, walk me and walk our listeners through uh, how to think about achieving our political goals. Great, yeah, thank you for that uh, nice handoff. Um, 
as an organizer, I think that it's always really exciting when there is an influx of new people and there's this like attention paid to the political moment that really gives a lot of opportunity to achieve the goals um, that so many of us really want to see. And a lot of the issue often is that there's just like too few people who are involved. And there's a separate issue that arises when there are a whole bunch of new people who like, you know, are in the mix and there's a little bit of tension that's created often between folks who have been on the ground and been organizing and people who suddenly have like seen this moment of like injustice or whatever it is that is like starting to radicalize them. And, you know, they just like sort of jump into the fray and have tons of energy and that's incredibly important. And one of the things I often think of is, you know, how do we not reinvent the wheel? And for people who have been in the fight for a little bit longer, like part of that work is, you know, looking at our history, like looking at radical history, looking at movements that have come before us and discerning, you know, what has worked and what hasn't worked and, you know, trying not to replicate the same mistakes that have happened before and trying to build kind of like collective knowledge to actually like accomplish these goals that we want to accomplish. And, you know, sometimes it gets whittled down into like workshops and trainings and those can be sort of problematic sometimes, you know, when it sort of prevents affected communities or like, you know, just like a new person from really feeling like they're able to affect change if they haven't gone every, you know, workshop, they haven't read every book, they haven't like, you know, gotten up to speed. So it's like definitely this like balance between wanting things to be like accessible. And obviously we all need each other and we need to have um, collective action that we can take together to accomplish those goals. But like, there is definitely a sort of threshold at which people are ingratiated in enough understanding of like what the fuck we're all doing. That makes <laughs> it like much more yeah. effective. And one of the things that like in the organizing I've done, I think about and utilize is like a whole conversation around like goals, strategy, and tactics. And it it feels pretty basic, but, you know, from my experience, it's actually really hard to like consciously do continuously, you know, like there's like, there's an emotional thing that happens. Like people are emotionally driven to react against like police violence in this or you know a clear cut of like a beautiful grove of old growth trees that you feel really attached to and so there's like an emotional like sort of spark that comes from this like emotional like space and then you know it's hard to kind of like settle back into like a logical approach and you need both but that's where sort of the conversation about like goals strategy and tactic and if we can kind of like get those down as muscle memory to like think through those things individually and collectively it really makes us like a much more like, in, like effective political force. Yeah, it. I sort of think of it as like, wh- I don't know. Maybe this is a bad metaphor, but like in relationships, uh, you, you can have like passion, and you can also have like sort of like devotion, long term work on relationships. And it's like the passion is good, and you need it. But for a relationship to last, you need that devotion. That's sort of like longer term work. And sort of that's kind of the way I'm seeing it here is like there's this thing that like motivates you that just like brings your energy to to the movement. But you have to sit, you have to like take a moment and realize that, okay, you have to think about how to achieve those fucking goals. 
instead of just feeling it. Yeah, yeah. that's a great metaphor. Yeah, I've never heard that one before. That's great. <laughs> so yeah, I guess let's talk about um, that series of steps in a little more detail. Um, this is going to be probably a lot of repetition, but I think that's because it's really important. And a lot of people, including myself, um, often forget that these are kind of the steps you have to go through when you're doing any sort of campaign or political organizing work. Is step one is identify your goals. And that's sort of like the end, the end product, at which point you can like stop organizing and just retire and like live a happy life. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> for the first example, I'm going to use a forest campaign just because I think it's one of the most like easy and concrete things to think about with very straightforward goals. And there's a very like definite like end and we won and we can do something else now. And then we're going to talk about other examples. Cool. So a goal there might be, oh, this one timber sale on public land um sucks and we don't want this public land to get clear cut and we want to stop the federal government say from having a private timber company cut this public land so yeah. our goal is to prevent logging from taking place um so now we figured out what we're trying to do how you know at what point can we say that we won so next step what is our strategy for forest defense it's usually the same strategy although not always and usually it's mount some sort of legal challenge. But in the meantime, you have to prevent the loggers from actually logging the forest before your attorneys can win. Yeah. So your strategy is to mount a legal challenge while simultaneously preventing loggers from carrying out logging. And if you can pull off that strategy correctly, you can meet your goals, which is to save the forest. Yeah. Which brings you to the final arena, which is tactics. So in that case, once again, your lawyers have their own tactics. And I'm not going to talk about that for the simple reason that that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. Um, they'll, they'll sue the government. That yeah. That's kind of it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> uh, you also have to get a bunch of like, you know, dirty forest kids out there to somehow prevent loggers from logging. And that's usually yeah. a combination of tree sits or... Uh, cat and mouse, which is where you run around and are like in the physical logging area so that they're not legally allowed to log because it's an OSHA violation or blocking roads. And we don't need to get into the weeds on tactics there. Um, yeah. A lot of people have. Yeah. Sort of a yeah. If people but, want to find resources on those tactics, they can find them. Yeah. And we'll reference those at some point in this podcast. Uh, so if you do your tactics correctly, then in this case, you prevent the loggers from logging and your attorneys, you basically buy time for them so they can successfully sue the government and then the logging has to stop and then the forest isn't clear cut and you've met your goals. Yeah. So that's kind of a very straightforward beginner example of how to so run a campaign. It gets more complicated, right? There was a reason I, get, I started with that one. <laughs> i mean like then you're like oh cool now this area isn't getting logged we won everyone go yeah home. uh if your goal is something like uh end capitalism in the state you know it gets a little bit <laughs> mushier 
Yeah, I realize that every day. Yeah, um, as a part of the sort of process by which we think about like goals and strategy and tactics, um, there's some sort of, you know, template that we can use um, to sort of like guide those conversations, even if like they like, you know, lean towards the end of being like pretty straightforward or like lean towards the end of being very complicated. Um, and like, there's like certain questions that like, you know, I'll ask myself or like, we'll ask each other in the group space. Um, and like one of the starting points for that is just like, you know, where do you already hold power? And sometimes that, okay. can be like, you know, you are constituents. And even if you maybe don't agree with the existence of the state, like in this material reality, like you are constituents. So maybe you have some right. like, you know, like electoral power or, you know, you yeah. have an actual neighborhood if, you know, potentially you're organizing against like developers and gentrification. Like there's like a lot of yeah. like, physical bodies on the ground that like hold power there. And like, yeah. one of those yeah. ways that, you know, it's helpful to like think about it is like, where do you already hold power and how do you like maximize and concentrate your power? And so Sometimes it looks like, I mean, so the first step is like, you know, understanding your position and things. And then another step is like, how do you expand that? And sometimes that could look like, you know, bringing in new people, or it could look like understanding the landscape of other people who are doing similar work and like building coalition space, which is basically just bringing in a bunch of different groups. And often like a spokes council model is used for that. But like, it's sort of- so, like, so. What's a spokes council model? So it's actually really effective and I'm a big fan. Um, what it looks like is having, you know, a variety of organizations and groups and they can be anything from like a group of people in a neighborhood to a grassroots unpaid organization to like an NGO or nonprofit. And, you know, you all have sort of some stake in the outcome of whatever the campaign is that you're working on. And you all have like a representative go to this one meeting where you represent your group, but you don't represent yourself. And you yeah. talk through the ideas around this campaign and how to proceed and, you know, like have discussion around like what's possible and then go back to your groups without having made any decisions. Cause like you don't want to necessarily, I mean, you don't want to make decisions without your group consenting, but you go back to your groups, you have a conversation and then make decisions in your group. And then you kind of like have another spokes meeting where you kind of bring back what your group is wanting to work okay. on, to work on, et cetera. Yeah. So that's a way of like organizing with coalitions. Yeah. And it's cool. a way for organizing in sort of a horizontal platform. Uh, and, you know, maybe not all of the listeners out there are anarchists, but many of us organizing are. Uh, it's also a way of organizing in a consensus-based non-hierarchical model that allows us to organize as a model for what we would like the future that we're all ultimately fighting for to look like. Right. So like you can have coordination without having hierarchy. I mean, that that's kind of, I don't know, that, that's one of the assumptions that we're constantly fighting. Um, but yeah, so this is a way to get a bunch of groups who maybe probably disagree about things, have different politics, but uh, because they have this way to communicate and coordinate with one with one another, they can still like build a strategy that achieves their goal. Yeah, that is very well put. <laughs> um, go ahead. I I'm sorry. I I 
so it sounded like you 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 brought up um, you brought up spokes councils in the context of coalition organizing, but it sounds like you might have been you you were headed you were headed somewhere else with that too. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing that comes to mind is when you're utilizing tactics. This is a little bit getting into the sort of details of tactics, and I guess I would preface this by saying that it's often um, an issue where there's like tactic, tactics in terms of um, themselves being on their own without like an attachment to strategy. And so like tactics are really, yeah. really sexy and really exciting. And like a lot of people, I myself do this, get into sort of this like space where like you just like know this one tactic, you've seen it done or you've read about it or like you've thought of yeah. it and you want to use it. So I just want to preface this like next thing that I'm saying about tactics, not like center tactics as though they're like the main thing, although they often like look and feel as though they are. So it's important to remember that like tactics fit into a strategy to accomplish the goal and that like kind of like check back process has to like continue to happen. Um, but I'm still going to say something about tactics, just wanted to like caveat. Um, but there's a really important thing with tactics is like figuring out like the power behind those tactics and understanding how leverage functions. And so if like within your strategy, you're attempting to, you know, have uh, various like state entities make a decision, to go back to the example of a forest campaign, uh, make a decision to prevent the logging from happening, the tactics that you're using like have to either be very direct, so like that would consist of like a blockade or like a tree sit or something that's very tangible. Yeah, so direct action. Yeah, so direct action, or they have to have some sort of like political leverage. And so like that could look like, you know, figuring out who the decision maker is and like understanding like, you know, things about their like life and who they care about. And then maybe trying to like pressure those people into understanding like that this person, although you think they're like a great person is responsible for like clear cutting a whole bunch of forests that like you love. So there's always a power dynamic that functions within that. If it's a less kind of like concrete, you know, direct action based thing, um, that's important to like think through because it's like, you know, you can have a tactic, but it can be divorced from an actual like PowerPoint. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that seems to be, I mean, it's one of the major issues that I think we try, try to address when we talk about this, like the, you know, the, the, that we're that we're even bringing this up is that a lot of new people come into the movement and they get distracted by tactics and like I know that has definitely been the case for me. It's that like when you're when you're like an American and you watch videos of stuff that goes down in Europe, you're like, oh, well, that, right. that's kind of interesting, right? Um, <laughs> and and a lot of that stuff doesn't fly over here, but uh, it's easy to be uh, sort of enamored with that that sort of like immediate direct action on the ground and not see how it's connecting to an organized strategy to to achieve your actual goals and i think i I think we see that as a problem in in movements pretty often yeah yes so i think the term for what you're talking about is called riot porn Uh, (laughs) and for various reasons that we don't need to get into here that tends to come out of Europe. Um, what we see a lot, especially with new people, especially with young new people, and especially with young new people when the issue is the abolition of the police, is yeah. 
a strong focus on tactics of street battles with the police. Yeah. And to be sure, there are times when that's actually a very appropriate tactic, but there are a tons of a ton of times when that's not an appropriate tactic at all. And people just get really focused on that. And, you know, say you manage to push back a line of riot cops and take a block of the street from them, like, now what? What did you actually accomplish? How did that tactic that you pulled off successfully actually further your strategy or your goals? Yeah. In the majority of cases, the answer is it did not. And I want to be very clear that I'm not saying we should never engage in those sorts of tactics, but we should be very cognizant of why we're doing it and does it fit into our overall strategy in the moment? Yeah. So <laughs> when we're trying to, I guess I want to back up a little bit with, with all of these things, with goals and strategy and tactics, it's often possible to have multiple goals, multiple strategies and multiple tactics at once. All right. So for example, let's say our goal is to abolish the police. It's possible yeah. for that to be our goal. And for another goal to also be to abolish capitalism in the state. And yeah. that one is a little bit less palatable to a lot of people. So we're doing the abolish the police one now because it seems more possible, but we're also yeah. trying to accomplish that goal ideally in a way that makes our other goals more possible in the future. Yeah. And that's a grand strategy, you might say. Yep. Uh, this often happens with strategies. Uh, I think we see a lot of confusion, especially with new people and especially with uh, centrist new people around <laughs> the interplay between nonviolent strategies and strategies that are a little bit more confrontational, if not actually violent. These are yeah. things like, say, looting chain stores like Target. Yeah, which to be clear, that's not violence, which I, you know I think we all understand. But thank you it, for clarifying. It has to, yeah. it has to be said. <laughs> yeah. Inanimate objects cannot experience violence. Uh, yeah. So people holding a prayer candlelight vigil um, to honor, you know, uh, people who were killed by police, and a different group of people looting a Target store are different strategies. And these are strategies that can exist in the same movement space. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. So, so I, the, the phrase that comes to my mind when I hear that is diversity of tactics. Yep, that's one we like to throw around a lot. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about diversity of tactics. Uh, to present it, I guess the short version, uh, typically, the, just like in a healthy ecosystem where the greater diversity of species you have, the healthier the ecosystem is and the more resilient it is, we tend to feel like this is also true of movement spaces. If we have a lot of different tactics happening simultaneously and supporting each other and not throwing each other under the bus, it gives us a lot more flexibility. And if one tactic stops working as well because the police are able to adapt, we have other strategies to fall back on. Uh, not to mention, and we'll see if we get, have time to talk about this later, the right is a lot better at this than the left. Uh, we sort of have flanking strategies. If we have a super, in the, for example, a really 
reasonable sounding sort of centrist approach of like, well, let's like heavily reform the police and make them not murder nearly as much as many people. And we yeah. have a much more radical wing saying we should abolish them completely. Yeah. The radical wing makes the centrist wing look much more reasonable by comparison. Yeah. So yeah, it's like an over 10 window kind of thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, on the kind of left, and I guess I kind of grossly include liberals in this yeah. <laughs> uh, or progressives uh, scenario, try to condemn the kind of like left flank people who are advocating for more militant action. They're kind of hurting their own cause because it's the people to their left who are more militant that make their cause, the centrist cause, look much more reasonable and appealing by comparison. Yeah, it sort of gets to like a, a historical tradition that where like when when the people in power understand what the alternative is to uh, not giving in to sort of center moderate demands, like it, like with the civil rights uh, with like the civil rights movement, you had like uh, Malcolm X and you had the Black Panthers and like the Young Lords and uh you know the deacons for you know the, the deacon uh the deacons for self-defense who were like armed groups and, and like martin luther king himself also like uh, attempted to be armed for his own self-defense uh all those groups sort of presented like uh it was a message to the government that if you don't pass the civil rights act combined with riots that happened after martin luther king was murdered um that if you don't give in to this to this sort of like centrist moderate position that like shit's gonna get worse for you yeah and i think that's a frustration that often um is something that's experienced by organizers or people who have been like in spaces doing kind of on the ground work for a while where I think I mentioned earlier, but like part of that work is like, you know, like knowing our history and like understanding like who's come before us and like, you know, how they interfaced with the same, you know, like enemies that we interface with now. And yeah, there's like that whole whitewashing of MLK that exists, right? right. Like, you know, liberals love to post online all about how, you know, their critique of rioting and looting and like <laughs> like on the street politics are bad because MLK was just like, you know, so peaceful. And like, look what he was able to like accomplish for the civil rights movement. And so I think that's something that like is interesting and pretty difficult to navigate because yeah, as like, you know, leftists and maybe anarchists and people who like definitely believe in like personal agency and, you know, don't yeah. want to have a very like top down process by which people are ingratiated into like the, like, you know, activist and organizer space. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you have to take this one-on-one class and then this 200 level class and this 300 level <laughs> class. You have to have a degree. Like there's no yeah. ability for like that kind of restrictive process, which I don't think there should be. And right. also it's frustrating when there's like an ahistorical representation of things that actually like are people who are on our team. And so right. it's like a question of how do we take what people feel comfortable with, which is like in this example, 
you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and like civil rights and like people who are attached to him as a figurehead for justifying their position when because they don't actually understand the full history, they're actually not yeah. then able to justify for the, their position if they actually did yeah. like, it more accurately. Which for, for anyone who hasn't read it, um, they should read uh, the letter from Birmingham jail that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote while he was in the Birmingham jail. Um, and that'll sort of give you a, a little dose of what he thought about the white moderate uh, and their position that black people should wait for justice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that uh, sort of building off of what like Jay said a minute ago, that there's... Um, a way to have, you know, tactics that fit into like the moment of what you're doing and also to understand that like there are, um, I guess, sort of people in power who have, you know, a lot of control over like how those tactics function. And so like, you know, if we were to think about it in terms of like a bioregional thing where, you know, if you live in a particular city you have like particular cops who interface with you or you have like a mayor or you have city commissioners. Like there's always, you know, this like a barrier to change in the institutions that exist. And those are different depending on where you live. And so if you have like sympathetic city commissioners, like that could be a good leverage point for you in your organizing because there's people who maybe were like previously sort of activists or at least, themselves as progressive and like you can build relationships yeah. with people and like have the ability to affect change in that kind of electoral model and yeah. also if you live in a space where like that is absolutely not you know possible and there's like a much more kind of like vanguardist like kind of um prevention for like you know grassroots or nonprofit or other organizations like kind of inner yeah. like cities like city yeah. council members etc um you have to kind of like read the room. So I think that like any of these sort of conversations around like goals, strategy and tactics, like have to be really like uh, place-based and there's no prescription. There's no like. So they, they have to be based on the material conditions that you're dealing yeah. with, which, you know, are different wherever you are. Yeah. And so there's definitely a way that, you know, a like general like one-on-one training around like goals and strategy and tactics can be a starting point, but they're always contingent upon, you know, the like individual materiality and also upon like, you know, the moment itself, because I think that like, there's been something we've been thinking about lately where like two months ago, if you had been like, Hey everybody abolish the police, either <laughs> you to you, yeah. or you would have gotten very active pushback. Yeah. You know, or whatever gray area in between those things. And now yeah. it's like, oh, like liberals are saying like kind of maybe abolish the police. Yeah. Like we can, we'll think about it. Yeah. We'll defund so them for sure. But we'll think yeah. about, we'll think about, about abolishing them too. Yeah. yeah. The overton window is definitely shifting. Yeah. And so that's, I think, really helpful for organizers to kind of like continually check in, which is why it's nice to have sort of um, like systems that don't have to be rigid. But you can kind of go through these like checkbox of conversations with yourself and your group, which is like, okay, like what are our goals? What is our strategy? Whatever. And sometimes your goals change because, you know, there could have been an instance where 
the police union was renegotiating its contract with like the police. And there was a solid date by which that would happen. And so right. he was organizing in a specific way leading up to that date. And then that happened. And now like the next day, there's a different like material reality that exists that you have to contend right. with. And I think a lot of times, you know, in all of our excitement, we get really like kind of caught up in this sort of like trajectory that doesn't like yeah. stop yeah. and like reassess what's going on and like ask these questions again. Yeah. It's, I, I kind of imagine this is one of the things that I, I, I would love to see in leftist movements is for something like that to happen and for a whole lot of action to happen right up until, you know, until that point when, all right, that date goes and suddenly that goal is no longer within reach um, or, you know, or you achieved it. And then the, ex and then the next day there's some different kind of action that just, you know, that, that, that just the people in power didn't, didn't expect, had no idea was coming. Uh, like, to me, that's a really beautiful thought that, that level of adaptiveness. If we, if we could get people up to that point, um, that gets me really excited. Yeah. I mean, that's dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think something we see often in movements is the goals shift, or even if the goal stays the same, the strategy shifts because of other kind of yeah. ground uh, changes, and the tactics do not shift. And I know I keep coming back to this, but it's something that we see so often, and it's so important that the tactics exist to accomplish the goals. Okay, so are you telling me that marching in the streets with signs and doing nothing else? Um, that, that it doesn't always work. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. Uh, oh, shit. It does. <laughs> I don't want to throw that tactic under the bus forever. Well, can I say something? I would yeah. say it, it is a thing that is, you know, a piece of it, which is like, if you're thinking about awareness building, like that does a good job. Right. If like there's True. an issue that like not many people are like aware of or familiar with, and you have like a, a massive march, like that is definitely good for building awareness. And unfortunately, it also does this thing where it gives a lot of catharsis to the energy in the moment or like the anger or like yeah. frustration in the moment. So I guess yeah. in my perspective, rallies and marches tend to be very uh, ineffective because they tend to like take all that energy and give it like an outlet that's ineffective. And then there's no kind of like forward organizing that exists beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, for like, they'd be good, but they're not often. <laughs> fact, often yeah. the organizers of the marching and holding signs are actively hostile to any other tactics. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, that's definitely true. And if they can see themselves as part of a diversity of tactics, they could actually be super useful. And yeah. There's actually an analogy uh, in this great book called Beautiful Trouble. It's a book on strategy and tactics that everyone should read. Um, about, we'll put a link to it in the in the description for this episode. Awesome. Um, and the analogy is about drum circles, which supposedly for people who participate in drum circles, they're this really amazing, cathartic, participatory, spiritual experience for everyone involved. And you know, being part of one changes their whole life 
and it's like nothing they've experienced before. But for everyone else who's not in the drum circle, it's fucking annoying. And, <laughs> and they wish everyone would stop doing it. And yeah. there's a tendency for organizing, and especially for radical organizing, to start going down the drum circle route, where it makes sense to everyone deeply involved in what you're doing, and it does not make sense at all to anybody yeah. else. And you know, yeah. it maybe feels really cathartic, like marching with signs. Yeah. And it, being in a drum circle, you haven't actually changed anything. Doesn't doesn't it also partially um I already know the answer to this, but I'm gonna ask you a question anyway. Doesn't doesn't like partially also matter like uh what the state response is? Because I, I would say that like in the wake of George Floyd being murdered by Derek Chauvin um and, and his accomplices that if police across the country had not responded with the massive amount, incredible amount of violence that they have responded to protests with, um, like in many ways, the police did the work of the leftist movement in the last month. Um, you know, what we've been trying to do for years to show that these people are violent thugs, they've gone and shown that that's what they are in just the course of one month. Um, so when, would you say that also part of it has to do with like how explicit the opposition is to, to your, uh, to your goals and to your strategy? Yeah, that's a fascinating point. And there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if I somehow went into like deep cover and became a cop and then joined the police you know, national organization, whatever, and came up with a strategy for them, but I was secretly working for our team the whole time. The strategy they've been pursuing is the exact one I would have come up with as an anarchist trying to undermine all of their efforts. I mean, <laughs> responding to anti-police brutality protests with just like extraordinary levels of police brutality. Yeah. I, I yeah. don't know what else they could have done to help our cause more. And yeah. I think this actually, they're falling into the drum circle trap. From their point of view as cops, they normally exist in a world where people are that they interact with are motivated solely by their self-interest and will do anything to avoid physical harm or legal consequences. Yeah, and which makes sense. Yeah, if you're just yeah. like kind of not an organizer, but it's sort of a conventional criminal that's that's going to work for you. Or a regular person on the street or in a car. Like you want, you know, you, you fucking hear the police sirens and like, I feel like almost everybody who hears police sirens, we get it like a jolt of adrenaline and we're like, what the fuck am I about to die? <laughs> well, I don't know if everyone feels like that. Just we or at least a lot of people. Everyone, you know, it sucks to get pulled over regardless. Yeah. So like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, and yeah. on top of that, cops, you know, I think we're all aware at this point, live in a pretty bro-y, macho universe where yeah. them receiving respect and obedience from everyone is paramount for their worldview. So yeah. they're yeah. responding, I think, pretty emotionally to protests that basically are questioning their very validity. Yeah. It's not I mean, they're like, they're the least emotionally mature people I can think of. 
Yes, it's it's astonishing. In a whole society yeah. of very emotionally immature people, so. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised. Uh, so I, from what we've seen on the ground, local, like, municipal police departments, we've kind of been going back and forth of whether they have zero strategy and are literally just, like, stumbling <laughs> in the dark, or if their strategy is so complex and well thought out that we can't even discern it. And I definitely think at this point it's the former. Uh, right. Yeah. We really seem yeah. to be responding on an emotional level. And I don't know what they're thinking. Like clearly at this point, responding to protests with like overwhelming violence and arrests just leads to more protests. So if their goal is to stop us from protesting them, they are totally failing. There's, uh, yeah, there's something to say specifically about the institution of the police that is the way in which they have like held impunity for almost their entire existence, and yeah, really difficult to like think about like the police, especially you know, barring other conversations about other like state entities, but like the police specifically, and also like anyone else, because there's a huge difference between how you know people who are of a, a different you know class, gender, race, etc experience the police but at the end of any conversation if the police were to be like you know pissed off upset desiring some amount of like need to harm anyone like more or less they can get away with whatever they like want to get away with yeah it's really like i think for most people hard to put them in like kind of like a logical sort of category because in no other realm of our individual like personal relationships do we interact with somebody who just like even though they're like the most emotionally mature or like you know don't have a good strategy or like i think yeah they yeah. can't get away with murder yeah like there's there's just yeah. like a baseline by which the cops operate and so they, they have a lot more flexibility in how they interact because they don't have to be as strategic or they don't have to be as you know, yeah. about. I mean, they're playing society on easy mode. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Yeah, their the, the normal yeah. life is like with all the cheat codes. Yeah, like, yeah, and so like the rest of us are going through, and we have to deal with interpersonal problems where like we can't get out of it by like beating the shit out of somebody. And, and make it work, for that reason, like, yeah. So and. I guess this is like a thing too in sort of the conversation of um, direct action organizing strategy. There's like this sort of like trope around a decision dilemma that exists where like if you are trying to gain audience members or like sympathetic people to like the cause that you're like fighting for, there's a way in which you position yourself intentionally against sort of the adversary that you see that like as of yet, other people don't see as an adversary. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the thing with the direct action when people like, you know, lock down to something or like, you know, create some sort of like moment where either the person who they are contending with who has the current power in their hand has to either demonstrate force against that person or meet them at their, you know, uh, like meet them on their terms. And, you know, an example of that would be like, people go into uh, an office of like political officials and like lock themselves to a door and are like, we're not going to leave until you actually meet with us about the fact that you're trying to like build a pipeline through this like water source that's going to poison a whole bunch of people. And, you know, their options are to basically 
like forcibly remove you or talk to you or wait you out, which it turns out that the wait you out thing is pretty effective, which I don't necessarily want to say over. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, um, but you know, so like that's like, that's the concept is like in your organizing, like how do you create a decision dilemma? And yeah. so in this case, like, a lot of the on the street kind of interaction with, you know, the police post like the murder of George Floyd has been yeah. like pretty like quick to have the police respond in like a really shitty way where they yeah. thing. It's like we were like you could have waited us out. Like I think if the police had well made a decision not to engage as directly, they would have probably maybe not turned more of the public against themselves. So like it's Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. But I, I think it gets at two things. Um, one, that normally the reason people like being waited out is a problem for people on the left is like we all fucking work jobs, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're the working class and we can't lose our job. And so we can't like lock down for two weeks. Well, now that the YLF has entered the scene, that's not silly. <laughs> well, like the Zoomers are going to like, destroy everything and then finally we're going to be against the wall for being reactionaries but i feel like we've got a little time but <laughs> i i think there's also a, a much broader analysis to be made there which is like this is one of those internal contradictions of capitalism right is that uh capitalism is what has created this crisis of people being unemployed right um and now they have the fucking time to oppose the system of capitalism, even if they they're not like even if they don't quite know that that's what they're doing. Uh, and so they can like be out in the streets. You can be you can have people who are like in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are still out on the fucking streets. And it's not just young people, though it is definitely young people who are the core of it. Um, and and so like because capitalism has so fucked people over, it has given people the opportunity to fight it. Uh, in the form of fighting the police. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) a lot of uh, sort of like non-overt conversation around that. I think that like I've heard uh, fellow organizers like mention that where it's like, obviously this is why we don't have free education. We don't have free healthcare. We don't have like decommodified housing. We don't have social safety nets. Because if we did then these things that are really like harmful to like the majority of people like would be things that wouldn't exist because we would like be able to take a stand against those things. And so I think that like, yeah, it's very interesting and like, you know, a puzzle to sort of think about like the combination of like a global pandemic happening at the same time as like sort of like a, you know, uprising yeah movement and like could they have happened without each other like you know there's all these like breaking points that exist and this happened to be one that really yeah you know because of the people were like fucking tired of staying at home and you know aren't also working like jobs and also feel like really disenfranchised and also starting to see the cracks in capitalism where before they were middle class but suddenly they're unemployed um like on like the sort of like you know like next uh sort of like iteration of it was this like whole other like crisis and they like piggybacked off each other in a way that like really led to this potential for uprising and also i think what we were talking about earlier is that like there is still this question of like how do you navigate like a huge influx of people and energy yeah like yeah it's awesome it's like it's great that we're all it's incredible 
and like, also there's like problems. Never would I have believed that so many people would be out willing to be fucking tear gassed. And yet there they were. Yep. And I guess I think like the yellow yeah. vests are a really good example in my mind. Because Definitely. Or even like yeah. the Maidan in the Ukraine. Um, those movements were like not leftist movements, you know? Like no. they were very like working class and very like uh yeah. like genius and like very, you know, sort of individualized often. And there was like really yeah. beautiful things that I think that like leftists and anarchists could look at it and be like, oh my God, this is like one of these examples yeah. of like what we want. And there's also yeah. tons of like other people who like didn't who were like maybe like yeah this or incredibly sexist like yeah shit, like, like in your in your Maidan you had anarchists and fascists like yeah. fighting on the same side against the Ukrainian state yeah it's like just <laughs> fucking get that through your head <laughs> I, mean, I guess to my knowledge I think the Maidan is held up as this like example of how the left ceded territory because it wasn't pure I mean. There wasn't a very strong left in Ukraine. That was also another side is there of it. Is a strong that... left most places? <laughs> There's not one here. I don't know. Germany, maybe. Um, Germany like, and France, maybe. <laughs> What's that? I, 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 anyway, I was just making a comment. Yeah. Not necessarily according to friends of mine who are German or French, but that's kind of conversation. Uh, uh, yeah, it, I, it's definitely not... debatable. Stronger than Ukraine. I think that's fair to say. And I, and I guess I would just say that, like, from what I've like read and like thought about around like the Maidan, it's something where, you know, even if it wasn't a strong movement, those who yeah. were like, leftists still could have, or maybe, and maybe did. So like, I don't want to like assume a lot of things about the people and I don't want to like, you know, whatever. I've yeah. never had like intensive situation. So not to like criticize right. them at all, but like in my sort of like intellectual formation of like how that happened, I think there's still a way in which from like the analysis I've read coming out of it that like the left seated like that space and those demands because it wasn't like a like fully leftist space and it wasn't like yeah. organized by leftists who had an idea and like a set of demands and like you know wanted to do yeah. the whole like planning of like goals strategy tactics like it was super right. amazing. and so it sounds like from what I've read and I can be 100% wrong but like or at least partially wrong but it sounds like they you know, were frustrated that there was this like mix of like, you know, like anti-state leftists and like fascists and whatever, but they all had the common goal of like, not this fucking dictator president. Right. You know, and, and we have. Yeah. So yeah. And the strategy seemed kind of clear at that point, which was you stay where the, you stay where you are. You don't give ground. Mm -hmm. So. And I mean, that's a whole question of like, what does it mean to like occupy a space? What does it mean to create an autonomous zone? What does it mean to like actually like hold space against the state? Like that's a yeah. very risky endeavor. And like, yeah, yeah there has a goal of like genuinely actually trying to like take territory back, which is like a pretty big goal that is usually pretty hard to do. Yeah. And also yeah. it has like a very like useful kind of opportunity where both people can come together and like have like relationships built, like conversations, like trainings potentially, or like a taste of what it means to not have the state involved. And also it could like genuinely be a thing where like you create an autonomous zone and like you build outwards from that. And like you maybe, you know, can uh, sort of create an alternative to. And I think that like yeah. that exists mostly like in a failed state, like obviously like Rajab yeah. in Syria is yeah. probably like the best leftist leftist examples of that happening because like 
nobody yeah. wanted that territory for like a little while. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, well, and I think yeah. I think it's actually kind of Ro- Rojava is kind of notable because it has resources, right? It, mm-hmm. it controls most of the oil production in Syria. And then there's also um, the Zapatistas in Chiapas in, mm-hmm. in what, you know, the Mexican state calls it Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, like the U.S. as like a white supremacist project that is like one of the most militarized and like heavily like, you know, uh prison industrial complex based societies like it's, yeah. it's a wholly different thing here you know right and right so it's not to say that you know those similar like tactics could be just sort of transplanted into like what we're doing in the u.s but it's also to say no. that a lot of people in the u.s are like comfortable to the degree that they wouldn't even try necessarily yeah, yeah. so it's it's definitely useful to have sort of like cross uh you know i don't know geography or like cross uh society like understanding conversations about what's happening but also having a realistic understanding that like you know the like again the the material reality of like what uh as a u.s person i experience versus what happens in like france the yellow vest or in the ukraine with maidan or like in syria it's rojava or in right. Texas, like they're all very different so it's like you can you can glean right. from each other's like struggles but like right. so it's no one you know, yeah, of. we don't live in those places. Yeah. Like, and you know, we will, we have to come up with our own strategy. Like we might have similar goals, but we have to come up with our own strategy and tactics that work given our conditions, which are pretty, pretty fucking different. And I would say in that case that honestly, like tactics actually are pretty applicable to, to an extent. Like, I think it was touched on earlier in this, like, you know, uh, conversation where like, yeah, like riot porn exists from Europe and the US like loves that shit, but like yeah, the, the like the cops in the state are very different. And also like tons of people gleaned a like ton from like Hong Kong. Oh yeah. Like there's yeah. so many things yeah. that I'm seeing on the streets in the US that are like coming from like Hong Kong or even just like sort of like yeah structure that's coming from like Rojava. Like there's ways that we can like share, but there's like yeah. we need to like yeah. differentiate it between like what our struggle is and like what their struggle is, but like trying to interface. Yeah. In some ways, like Hong Kong is more similar to us than say Chiapas or, or Rojava. For sure. Uh, because you have a strong centralized state. Um, yep. Whereas you don't have that in Mexico or Syria. Yep. Um, cool. Well, I want to go back to sort of the police strategy for a moment, if that's... Yeah. That works. Um, so we were kind of talking before about how, as far as we can tell, most of the local police departments has, seem to have no strategy, and yeah. just being reactionary, which is great for us. But what we've seen historically, and what we're still seeing now, is that this is not necessarily true of cops on the national level. Right. The FBI has a long and rich history of studying social movements and social change and developing pretty effective countermeasures at disrupting what we do. Yeah. So we should, you know, be thankful and take advantage of the fact that most of our local police departments are responding sort of blindly and emotionally in ways that actually help our cause. But we should also be very aware of the fact that the FBI is not doing that. And, you know, there's the famous... Cointel Pro example 
from the social movements of the 60s and early 70s, where yeah. the FBI sent in kind of a vast network of infiltrators with the task of not only reporting information back to the FBI on the activities of subversives, but also sort of disrupting our networks and sowing uh, conflict between different groups and individuals within the same group. And some of these are pretty like serious too. Like they were agents who had like long-term romantic relationships with activists and used that as a way to ingratiate themselves into spaces. So totally. And we've seen that same tactic used in Standing Rock, for example. So we know or Occupy. So we, we know they're still doing it. Um, and we would be naive to assume otherwise. Yeah. Um, which is not to say everyone should become super paranoid and, you know, shut down and leave the movement. Yeah. But it's good to be aware <laughs> of what you <laughs> are. And if you see individuals or groups pursuing strategies that are in line with what kind of Cointel Pro style groups have done in the past. Um, it's probably not productive to focus on whether or not these people or groups are actively working for the FBI. But if they are doing the sort of shit the FBI agents do, it kind of doesn't matter if they're working for them or not. Right. <laughs> right. The effect is the same. Yeah. So what we've seen in a lot of cities is groups kind of popping up out of nowhere made up of organizers that no one's ever heard of before and claiming to be the self-proclaimed leaders of Black Lives Matter and really heavily policing other groups and having zero tolerance for diversity of tactics. Yeah. And And like suddenly getting meetings with like the mayor or the city, you know, the police commissioner. Yeah. And, you know, I think probably not all of these people are actual kind of cointel pro style groups i think it's likely that a lot of them are just kind of like well-meaning dumb centrists yeah uh, but some of them are plants like the, some of them are it would be dumb to otherwise and it kind of doesn't yeah matter. they're they're all in the same yeah group yeah of people the effect is the same and i guess i would add that like you know this is sort of the unfortunate outcome of like identity politics being like weaponized and obviously, you know, the origination of, you know, identity politics came from like a really like militant, like black, like queer community of like women yeah. who like understood how like positionality really like mattered in like how people were in- interfacing with like the, you know, struggles that they were. Yeah. And that's like something that has been sort of like, bastardized over time or sort of like co-opted over time and like I think like particularly in this like you know last couple of months of seeing how the BLM um like uprising has been happening you know I've tracked and also talked to like friends in a variety of like major cities who have like really big outpouring of you know resistance to police brutality who are starting to get on the page of at least defunding if not abolition and like similar tropes that pop up that are like oh there's this really like un like you know attractive and well-spoken and very palatable like black person and yeah. they are 
the like forefront of like this movement all of a sudden. And for myself in the space that I've organized in and for like, you know, talking with other people as well, like a lot of people are like, A, it's always really gross to just like, you know, obviously tokenize and or assume that there's like, you know, a block of anything, you know, whether it's like gender, sexuality, racially, ethnically based, like whatever, like everyone's different political opinion. That that it's a monolith. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so not to assume that, but you know, it's, it's still an effective tactic to have yeah. people who are like not, you know, historically organizers or don't have like a lot of connections to a community, but for whatever the reasons are, whether it's like malicious or not, they still kind of, you know, uh, confer with the state in a way that like really neutralizes the effectiveness of like movements. And because yeah. liberals are so afraid of being seen as racist they would rather take a like figurehead that is like this person of color like said one thing and like i don't actually have like the community like people of color to understand there's like a whole bunch of disagreement or like i don't actually want to do that work i just want to be told what to do that makes me feel like less bad about being yeah it's like you can't you can't call me racist because i followed what this black leader did yeah yeah and a problem we've been seeing most recently with these police abolition movements is that radical community organizers who are people of color tend yeah. to not live very long they tend to like die mysteriously and bizarrely um or go to- yeah or or go to prison um yeah so people who are radical organizers for people of color really don't like to publicly identify themselves. Yeah, that's which that's is, definitely been my experience. Which yeah. is totally reasonable, and I wouldn't be there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the record, I'm not a person of color. I'm a white person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And shit, I don't like publicly identifying as like a radical. Uh, so yeah, I don't think, I mean, yeah, I don't think any of us like to do it that openly, but... So you run into this problem when groups call for an action and people ask, well, who is putting this together? Because it has to be organized people of color. And the truth of the matter is it totally was, but the people in question would really rather not be publicly identified because they'll die if they do that. Yeah. And then you kind of get into sort of like identity politics catch 22. Yeah. So in the notes for this episode, we'll also put in some links to articles about the deaths of uh, like Black Lives Matter organizers after the Ferguson protests in yeah. 2014 or 15. That is a horrifying case study. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that a lot of what's difficult is that like they're are all kinds of side conversations, you know? And like, yeah, I personally feel very like validated very frequently talking to, you know, a variety of people who come from like, you know, different identity based backgrounds and have different levels of experience. But like the kind of core thing that we all share is like, at least like being organizers and being people who are in the movement who like think about these things a lot and have like really devoted a lot of our time and like our, you know, selves to wanting to fucking create like a wholly different world. And yeah. 
it's, you know, there's because of so many limitations, both based off of like how powerful we are to contend with the state or how powerful we are to contend with like, like, you know, air quotes, like well-meaning liberals when like they tokenize the shit out of people and they always like want to have like the most oppressed person like speak to an issue. And if like, you're not that most oppressed person, like you don't get to speak to an issue, but then like, you know, as an organizer, I talk to other friends who have, you know, those identities that the liberals would love to tokenize, but they like don't want to be tokenized. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a, a and and they're like scared of what the fucking government's going to do to them. And also don't want to fucking talk to liberals. Like the baseline is like not talking yeah, to liberals. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely like, like do not want to die or go to prison, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Their control. But I guess like it's, it's always these like really like kind of ongoing, like day to day, hour by hour, like conversations with people yeah. where you're just yeah. like building trust, building community, building experience together. And it's super yeah. fucking slow. Yeah. And, you know, I get frustrated with it as a person who is like, of course, I want to just be like, and now we all do the thing. And I yeah. also recognize that, like, that's not how organizing works. And so I know that it's no, it's background. It's hard and it takes a lot. It takes so much talking. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there's a way to have, like, good systems in place. Yeah. Something else that I would say is, like, you know, there's there there are structures and systems for a reason. And, like, having, yeah. like, good ability to just like work through problems together and have like a large amount of people who we can like actually like spend, you know, the designated amount of time together to like plan for something because we have structure and process is great. Yeah. And it's totally. also like really, you know, outside of the purview of like most like, you know, like Western, like US folks. And yeah. so it's like kind of like a learning curve to like bring new people into that space where like, you know, they aren't replicating a lot of like behaviors that were sort of like socialized yeah. onto them as a part of the society that we've all had. But like, you know, there's, there's an effort in like relearning those things. And so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for those of us who like, like European American, white Americans who grew up in a particular culture, we have, we have a way of approaching problems and social situations that, is like very particular to that culture, that that white culture in America. And part of the problem is that white culture in America. And so part part of organizing is breaking that down a bit and breaking down the like implicit hierarchy of white culture. Yeah, and I think that like yeah. some of, I guess, this is sort of like, uh, thing that I'm working through personally at the moment is like this idea of like performative like white like guilt and shame yeah and like genuine like in the trenches like you know like real kind of like mutual aid based work and there's this like book that comes to mind for me which is like white fragility by Robin D'Angelo which is fucking so terrible and I (laughs) Started out just like I like read part of it and I got so fucking angry. And then like over the course of a number of months, uh, I talked through it with like a number of other friends and you know, got perspective. And it is it's the worst version of how like white folks like are able to be actual like accomplices. It really just like ritualizes yeah. like, guilt. 
And it just like wants you to fucking like, I don't know if I can say this in this podcast, but like fucking like group masturbate around like (laughs) gross, like white fragile tears. And it like to actually have like, you know, like an understanding of like racialization is a process. It's a concept. Like gender and like sexuality, they're all constructs. It doesn't mean that they're right. not real and they don't have material consequences. I mean, but yeah, it's, exactly. It's still constructed for the capitalist order, and there's like a whole like you know division there. Yeah. But like a yeah. book like that makes me so frustrated because it like really does the same thing maybe as like rallies, which is to like sort of like cathartically remove like white people's ability to like really dig down and like fucking fight back. But it lets yeah. them, like feel like they are. It's I did it. Yeah, I absolutely. Like I read a book and now I feel guilty and horrible. And so I, I'm not the worst of the things or like, you know, just really yeah. people to have because, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, because feeling guilty is the same as justice. Which, you know, it's not right. Obviously, <laughs> like you have to undo the systems of oppression. And that means you have to fucking fight them. Not just emotionally uncomfortable, which I think that like at least for like that example of like that book or like whatever, like it like pushes you to be emotionally uncomfortable, which is like hard, but also like not like the same as like, like, like risk or like material consequence. Like it's different. Like I read this book and then I cried to myself for like three days and now I'm so sad that I'm a bad wife, but I have no pathways moving forward. Well, and like the path moving forward would be to like, yeah, put your body on the line. Like, you know, take yeah. risk. Well, and yeah, that's definitely like, that's what I pose. That's what I pose to white people is like, okay, you feel guilty and you feel shitty, but like, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Are you going to fight the system that created this, that created the oppression that maintains the oppression? Or are you just going to fucking sit and feel guilty? Well, get on the street and do something. Yeah. The problem is that, actually fighting it could make me feel physically uncomfortable instead of just emotionally uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, I guess my answer to that is like, uh, the police make people of color feel physically uncomfortable every fucking day. Like this is the reality that so many people live with, uh, every day of their lives. Like that is white privilege. That is a white privilege is to feel physically safe, uh, when the police are around. And you know, okay, there's a great article out there called Accomplices Not Allies. Yes, I want to, I want to, that will also be in the episode notes. Okay, great. <laughs> um, I think obviously acting as an ally is way better than not doing that. Uh, but even better is kind of the concept is accomplices, not allies. If you can find common ground and goals that help everyone involved, it's a much better motivator and you kind of tend to approach projects to collaborate on uh, with more clear goals and more clear bounds around how you're working together. Yeah. In this context, police brutality clearly affects black people more than anyone else. Disproportionately. Yeah. Yeah. Disproportionately. But you know what? It also sucks for like, I don't know, basically everyone except for rich people. Yeah, I mean, so so it's like black people and Latinos are disproportionately targeted by the police, but the majority of victims of police violence remain white working class people. Sure. So 
and it, like it's dispropor- disproportionately affects people of color. Yeah. But it's still like, but white people are still fucking oppressed by the police every day. So it, it's like both of those things are true at the same time. And we have to negotiate that and respond to that reality. And that's why it's like, you know, sort of like interesting, if not funny, that like when this conversation shifts towards like police brutality, like, yes, it's disproportionate for, you know, like black folks, like Latinx folks, like indigenous folks. And yet yeah. like, the majority of that violence is like enacted on white people, but like we're obviously a larger portion of the population. Exactly. Like, yeah. It's like some of this like weird, like kind of like, is this funny? Is it not funny? It's not funny. But like white people are like, oh, like police brutality doesn't affect me because it's so dispersed. Yeah, it actually affects you a fuck ton. But then, but then that's a class relationship, and obviously, like we're right. head into each other. But like it yeah. is like I don't guess I don't know. I I find some like sort of nihilistic amusement in the idea <laughs> of, like like still there's this like huge portion of like white folks who are like very much so affected by like police violence. And like, still just see it as this like, you know, other, othered issue, yeah. and yeah. like, you know, that just requires this whole like, yeah. statistical like, you know, can I make you a slideshow? Do you want to talk about the slideshow with me? Like, no one wants to do that, but you know, no. So ideally, yeah. you know, definitely, I want police to stop murdering black people. Um, yes, but I also, as a white person who is not rich want them to stop murdering me and people like me and, yeah and so, or i mean like ultimately like not to exist but like yeah yeah uh, yeah I'd like them to the thing is so long as they exist they will murder yeah so, so there's really no negotiation there obviously yeah I, guess I think for you know i guess in my case like working class white people um it's probably ultimately a better long-term motivator to be like yo the police are shitty and murder all kinds of people, including you. And like, yeah, yeah we have solidarity with, you know, in this case, people of color. Um, but that's actually not the only motivating reason you should have. They also kill yeah. you and your people. Yeah. You so can like, have multiple reasons for like, you can, you can be in solidarity with people who are disproportionately affected by a problem, but also like, you know, yeah. you can, you can like, it fucking affects you, dude. Well, it's fine. Come yeah. And work together. Yeah. So is there anything that, uh, you know, we're kind of running up on the end of time. Uh, we're about to collapse into, uh, you know, the end of the universe. So uh, can you, is there anything you want to add to, to close? Um, I guess the only thing that I feel like we haven't touched on like enough um is just like the way in which like tactics can be replicated in like a really ineffective way because they are unattached to strategy i know that like we have like touched on that but i guess i would just like to offer an example of how that is like concretely true which is you know there there are a variety of tactics and in this example there's like blocking traffic (laughs) and There was an instance, I think in like 2015, like during like the Ferguson um, like uprising where like a lot of like Black Lives Matter, like associated and like movement-based folks were like, like really like shutting down freeways and like really blocking, you know, traffic and like, you know, the underlying sort of um, 
narrative and like goal was that, you know, oh, this is like very inconvenient for you as a commuter, like totally understand that, you know, it's like very inconvenient as being like murdered by cops. So like it it really had like a very like kind of like poignant uh, narrative that was like, like that tactic and the strategy or a variety of strategies, but like, you know, it really made sense. Yeah. I guess beyond that, I've now seen like a number of other groups, um, Extinction Rebellion in particular, sort of adopt <laughs> that uh, tactic without actually having like a strategic understanding of like why that tactic is useful. And so they sort yeah. of indiscriminately like block traffic where they're like just pissing off people as also like kind of like middle-class white people who like are trying to get people to like think about climate change, but like don't really have a goal. Like they don't really like, know what they're doing, but they're like, I saw this tactic this one time and I'm going to like replicate it because, you know, it seemed to have worked then. And yeah. they really, like kind of have their footing around like why that tactic was relevant to the strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like now that I've inconvenienced you and pissed you off, will you listen to these things I have to say? It's <laughs> like for anyone yeah. ever to get a hard no. Um, so yeah, so I guess that'd be like sort of my like final thought is just that like, you know, it's, it is really important to think through like, what is our goal? Like, what is our yeah. strategy? And then what is our tactic? And those are in like, definitely like sort of descending categories because yeah. the tactic in search of a strategy, like that's just like, not yeah. work. and also like, just because like a tactic worked before in this one thing doesn't mean that it applies to like the political like campaign yeah. like you're navigating. Yeah. So I think it's worthwhile for anybody who's doing like, you know, organizing work to really like have thoughtful conversations with like both themselves and like the groups yeah. they're and also like if it is a coalition space or however, like it's really good to like think through these things every time. Cause yeah. I've definitely seen, you know, spaces that I've been involved with where like this worked last time and we like did an occupation or we did a sit in or we did a banner drop or we did, you know, a blockade or like whatever. And that's not yeah. the thing that matters to like that particular moment. Right. And so I think tactics have to be like backburnered and we have to think about like, yeah. you know, how those apply to like what our end goals are. Yeah. I, and I think I would want to add to that because th- this is a thing that irks me a lot. And this is coming a little bit more from the law side of things. Um, getting arrested is a bad idea you probably shouldn't do it if you can like do your thing and not get arrested that's probably better yeah <laughs> um like the amount of resources it take like the amount of resources it takes to do like jail support and to like support someone who has been arrested going through uh going through the system and having to go to court and be defended by an attorney and like it's it's dozens hundreds of hours of time so that's one thing that like i've seen with some like more like white middle class yeah activists mm-hmm. who tend to not quite understand just how dramatic an action like how many resources that takes um whereas for people who are like working class or young and working class Getting arrested means you lose your apartment. Yeah. It means uh, you lose your job. It means that uh, you could end up homeless. Yeah. So uh, just you know, just a thing for people to be aware of is that, like, yeah, getting arrested 
can like have an effect, but uh, you really have to understand like how fucking bad it is and how many resources it takes to to manage that. Make sure it's strategic. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess in my perspective of that, I agree with so much of what you said. And <laughs> uh, sometimes I have this like moment where I'm like, I wish you were to get arrested. This like you know, sort of like you know, comfortable middle class like white person, just like see what jail's like. And then I also, after having thought that, have experienced that with people, and they come out the other side and they're like, I was treated so nicely, like you know, like obviously like a white so middle. I- person who goes to jail like you're not actually having the experience of jail so part yeah. of once he was like interface with like that like violent and like kind of autonomy like ripping space of yeah what it means to be in custody and also yeah. if you're not if you if you are a person of privilege like you're still not going to have that same experience and so yeah really the like you know the sort of like cost benefit analysis around that is that like actually it seems to give a lot of like sort of like um, comfortable, like white liberals, like a badge of like, I've been arrested this many times. People yeah. say so many times, it's gross. Yeah. And, and so I guess like to me, it's, it's like- try, try being transgender and getting arrested. Try, you know- Poor like, person of color, like yes. Yeah. So things like for sure. And also I guess I would say that like, uh, it's still like very useful to have that like diversity of tactics conversation because like if like people are like overtly getting arrested in this like sort of like lockdown space because they know that they have like privilege as like white middle class liberals or like boomers like Like, yeah who own their houses and don't really risk a whole lot yeah but it could potentially distract from like another tactic that's happening you know so yeah. if they were in conversation with each other and there was like a strategy around how that could like play off of each other that would be great but i think yeah. that like unfortunately from my experience uh people are pretty like high horsed about like their version of a tactic which is like unfortunate. Yeah. where like you know we all kind of give like or some people give lip service to like the diversity of tactics but it's like really hard to interface in a way that is like hey you're the bullshit like rich white people who like create a blockade that gets arrested so the rest of us can actually do a thing yeah and you know like that like that communication around like how do we like all work together is still like a thing i think that yeah we're hopefully building hopefully it'll change but yeah um did you have anything else to add jay i do not well cool i am so fucking happy that i got to talk to you two for this um I, I know that I, I've learned new things. Uh, I hope that our listeners have taken as much as they can from these two incredible people who, who I've had the privilege to be able to, you know, talk to now and in other conversations. Um, so we're going to put some resources in the notes for this episode that are going to range for talking about, like, how, you know, how to be a white person who supports Black Lives Matter in a way that's effective and doesn't tokenize people of color. Uh, and, uh, you know, other resources to sort of analyze strategy and tactics and kind of how they work. Uh, so, as always, it's a long road. We don't really know where we're going. 
but we uh, will get there together because that's all we can do. Thanks, y'all.